My name is Scott Nye, and this is Talking Radical Radio. Hello and welcome to Talking Radical Radio, where we bring you grassroots voices from across Canada. We give you the chance to hear many different people who are facing many different struggles talk about what they're doing, how they're doing it, and why they're doing it, in the belief that such listening is a crucial step in strengthening all of our efforts to change the world. On this week's show, I'll be speaking with Lamia Reddick and Ted Rutland. Halifax is unique among Canada's cities. Along with being a vibrant cultural and political centre despite its relatively small size, the Greater Halifax area is home to some of the longest-established communities of African-descended people in the country. Of course, the histories of these black communities are not just histories of presence, but histories of intense anti-black oppression and constant work by the communities to survive, resist, and thrive in the face of it. There is growing awareness even beyond Halifax of one of the more egregious examples of that oppression, the destruction of the community of Africville by the city of Halifax in the late 1960s. Yet as tragic and important as that story is, it is just one incident in a much larger history of anti-black policies and practices of city building that have been part of making Halifax over the course of centuries and that continue today. Beginning with early policies that gave black settlers who sided with the British in the U.S. Revolutionary War and the War of 1812 smaller, agriculturally poorer, and more distant land grants than white settlers, practices of planning and constituting urban spaces produced sharp segregation between those coded as white and those coded as black. They also produced a sharp division between the infrastructure, resources, and supports for well-being disproportionately allotted to the former and the harms disproportionately organized into the lives of the residents of the latter. Though the process and associated language looks very different than they might have in the 1860s or the 1960s, the result of the city's first region-wide planning initiative in the early 21st century similarly had what Rutland describes as a, quote, racist, anti-black underside. And that's despite extensive participation in the process from black communities. As well, at least some of the historic black communities in the Halifax area are under increasing threat of displacement from gentrification. Of course, throughout the many decades, the African Nova Scotian communities in the greater Halifax area and beyond have constantly worked to oppose anti-blackness, to build community, and to strive for better lives and a better world. This has ranged from the kinds of everyday mutual support and resistance that allow oppressed communities to survive, to moments of radical collective mobilization. Lamia Reddick is a community worker and a consultant at Lamia Connected Leadership. She grew up and lives in the African Nova Scotian community of North Preston, and her work consists of community engagement, public education, and broad-ranging community building, all of which she does in ways that foreground concern for justice and that connect the experiences of African Nova Scotian communities today with their long histories. It includes running her own community engagement space in North Preston, participating in an innovative grassroots community engagement project in Halifax's North End, and lots more. Ted Rutland is an associate professor in the Department of Geography, Planning, and Environment at Concordia University in Montreal. He did a lot of his post-secondary schooling in the Halifax area and has engaged in both writing and activism to contribute to the fight against unjust and racist planning, policing, and urban development policies for many years. 
He is the author of Displacing Blackness, Planning, Power, and Race in 20th Century Halifax, published in 2018 by University of Toronto Press. We speak about the Greater Halifax Area, about the long histories of anti-blackness and the policies and practices that have built the city, and the equally long histories of survival and resistance by black communities, and about what those histories mean for today and for the future. I'm Ted Rutland. I'm a, an associate professor in the Department of Geography, Planning and Environment at Concordia University in Montreal. For many years, I've been trying to think through the racial politics of modern cities, particularly in Canada, both through writing and activism, trying to fight against racially unjust and socially unjust planning, policing, and urban development policies. I'm Lumia Reddick. I have a consulting company called Lumia Connects Consulting. I'm focused a lot on doing community engagement work, particularly with the African Nova Scotia community here in Nova Scotia. Some of the things that I've been involved with is justice-related issues, and I just really kind of work to facilitate community discussions about topics and justice-related issues and really working with getting a community analysis and bringing community into the conversation. So a lot of my work has really been focused on thinking a lot about historical injustices for African and social people and working together to fix some of those things. So a lot of my work involves building relationships with community and investigating and asking big questions about where we may want to go in the future in terms of building just societies. My experience of the city is as a white man from Northern Ontario moving to the Maritimes to go to school. And Halifax on the surface is this quite vibrant small city of 350,000 people. But I think that a lot of people who move there from away hopefully come to realize that there's something beyond that surface. It's an extremely segregated city racially, which is quite shocking, I think, for someone who's not from Atlanta, Canada, because segregation plays out in very, very, very different ways in other places in Canada. And so I, like I think many people who come to the city from away, feel shocked by that. And then this leads to really thinking about this history that isn't obvious to the naked eye. And so for me, the beautiful side of Halifax ultimately is this long history of Black struggle in and around Halifax, where African Nova Scotian people have been fighting for 200 years or longer to build community in the face of discrimination, oppression, and displacement creating innovative forms of culture, religious practices, social movements. If we want more socially just cities, it's those movements that have existed for a very long time in African Nova Scotian communities that have so much to teach us about how to make better cities. And so I think my impression of, of Halifax ends up being a sense of concern with the injustice that exists and that has existed for a long time, but also a sense of inspiration that comes from seeing these movements for justice that have come out of mostly African Nova Scotian communities that I think are pointing in a great direction that we could all move. I'm born and raised here as an African Nova Scotian Black woman. I'm relatively young. I kind of often bring the age piece into this because I know that there's been like a long history of there being struggles and work done before me. So for me, coming from the community of North Preston, where it's an African Nova Scotian community, our folks have been on these lands for years and years and years. And our community considered the largest Indigenous Black community in all of Canada. So coming from that place of understanding my community has really helped shape my view of Nova Scotia and also of me being a Black Canadian. Black Nova Scotians 
were in a position to have a really unique identity that is like a Black Canadian identity, the attachment that we kind of have to this land is because of, of this history. So I think that a lot of folks don't necessarily understand this history. And particularly a lot of African Nova Scotians may not necessarily know how unique we are either because like often in cities like Montreal and, and Toronto and these bigger cities, there's lots of diversity, but there isn't always folks that have been in Canada for generations and generations and generations. And so that's kind of the unique position that I'm coming from, like from a historical perspective, Indigenous Black Nova Scotians and our community in North Preston being one of the oldest and largest. And there's a lot of other Black communities and settlements of Black folks. And so I think that we're really interested in the histories of these places and the changing histories of them as well. A lot of the communities that used to exist, Black communities no longer exist. And a lot of them that do exist are, are fighting against gentrification and a lot of other environmental societal issues to keep the community strong with aging populations and young people moving away and all those things. So my view of the city is rooted in history, but also very current in like, what are the things that we have to grapple with and what are some of the systemic issues that we have to address? I'd be interested in hearing a bit more about the work that each of you does. Lamia, maybe you can start by talking a bit more about the work that you do in and with communities. I've kind of always had a dream of having a space in North Preston that I've been working on for the past couple of years getting set up. And so I run programs in space out of my basement here. And the whole goal of starting this house was basically to have an entry point for folks that are maybe not necessarily from the community to be able to come and, and learn a little bit about the history of Preston. And so like a cultural kind of hub space that really focuses on providing an opportunity for there to be ownership and a place for people to kind of come and gather and then be able to work on big issues and, and also really just be able to do the community work. So I think space is really important in the work that I do here in North Preston, building relationships with people, letting people know that there's somebody in the community that they can come to for various things. And then external from this place, I work in the city with lots of different agencies. One of the groups that I work with that I'm really proud of the work that we're doing in the North End is called the One North End. And the whole premise around the One North End project was about doing grassroots community engagement with the most vulnerable voices in the North End and to really engage them on issues relating to education, justice and employment. And so we're really getting to the grassroots and really asking some of those questions and being in relationship with communities and businesses that want to see these communities grow together as one. And then asking some of these questions more largely as well. I'm really interested in how we can bring the diversity and bring the historical aspects of our community to the forefront in the Canadian narrative a little bit more. There's a lot of advocacy and storytelling that I'm involved with as well. I guess I kind of just like do as much as I can to, you know, share with the public stories about, you know, African descendant people living and are from Nova Scotia and seeing our struggles and our ideas take its place within the Canadian narrative. So that's a full time. Like I spend a lot of my time just doing lots of different things in that regard. And Ted, talk more about the scholarly work that you've done with respect to Halifax. The major research project that I did on Halifax was published as a book in May 2018. It's called Displacing Blackness, Power Planning and Race in 20th Century Halifax. And what I was trying to do there is a couple of things. One way to frame the project is to say that Halifax is relatively well known for a particular incident of racist planning, which was the destruction of a community called Africville in the 1960s. And that story, because it's a terrible story, and it's also a story of resistance and resilience and community survival, 
I think is relatively well known. But what's clear when one talks to certain African Nova Scotian people, especially elders, is that what happened to Africville was important because that community mattered and what happened was horrible. But it's also important because it was symbolic of a broader problem in the greater Halifax area and across Nova Scotia. And that's a, a problem of state racism as expressed through urban planning among other state institutions. And so the book in part tries to trace some of that larger history. It tries to think about what planning was doing before the 1960s in the greater Halifax area. It tries to think about what's been happening since the 1960s, since the destruction of Africa in the greater Halifax area. It's trying to think about what planning was doing in the many other black communities in the greater Halifax area. So we're looking at somewhere between 8,000 and 20,000 people, depending on the moment of the 20th century we're looking at. And these communities have also faced injustices on the part of planners. And then trying to think also about what planning is doing in white communities, because racism isn't just expressed through state practices that affect people of color and indigenous people, but racism is also operative when the state is relating to white people. And so trying to think about how racism is embodied in the making of white spaces in Halifax as well. And then I guess finally trying to talk about some of the most important forms of Black struggle against planning through that history. So it sounds like for both of you in different ways, drawing on those histories of oppression and resistance is important for the work that you do. Give some more specific examples of stories or themes from among those histories that have been particularly important to you. For me, I often start with this story of how we even got to be in North Preston. There's a few different ways in which Black folks settle on these lands. Our ancestors were settled on land that was not fertile for growing food. And it was like all woods and just the removal from the city. I just often think about how far removed my folks were from having the basic necessities that they needed for survival. And so, you know, we often hear stories that our descendants kind of passed down to me. It's like we built North Preston and they found a way. Just like that story of where we came from having nothing to now having a very beautiful, vibrant community. So I think for me, the story is always kind of rooted in like how we came from nothing. And then also I often relate it to Africville too. Like what happened to Africville happened to all of us. The folks in our community had to fight to get everything, like to get streetlights and often petitioning the city for things and really having to really advocate to get some of the basic needs. We're still fighting today to get some of the things that we need. And so it's a long legacy of fighting and just being underdeveloped. So I think that it's like really ongoing and, and the historical fights are not so far removed from the fights that we're in right now. For me, I feel like there's these dramatic fights that have been very inspiring that have been led by African Nova Scotian people at particular moments in time. And then there's smaller things that are happening all the time. So maybe I'll give an example of both because I'm inspired by both the sort of banal everyday forms of struggle and these bigger ones as well. One of the most high profile struggles led by African Nova Scotians in the greater Halifax area happened in the late 1960s. And that's the formation of a group called the Black United Front, which was formed in 1968. And it was formed in this really tumultuous moment in Halifax, across Canada, across North America and around the world. The burgeoning, consolidating civil rights movement, as well as the Black Power movement, the creation of the Black Panther Party, as well as these decolonization movements in Africa 
movements that have a decolonizing flavor in the Caribbean as well. And in 1968, a really important African Nova Scotian activist, Rocky Jones, brings a number of members of the Black Panther Party, along with Stokely Carmichael, Mary Macaba, and Rosie Douglas to Halifax after having met them in Montreal. And they start speaking in a very radical, confrontational way. And this leads to the formation of an organization called the Black United Front, which, as the name suggests, is trying to bring together diverse political interests and tendencies within the Black community. And so the Black United Front wasn't as radical necessarily as Rocky Jones or the Black Panther Party. Rather, it was an attempt to bring together various strategies and ideologies but it fought really hard in a high-profile way and in diverse ways across Nova Scotia and really expressed a sense that it should not be this way. It is not right that people are living in poverty, that people can't get jobs, that people can't get a good education, that people are having their land taken, that Black communities are denied all kinds of housing subsidies that white people get or denied all these kinds of infrastructure like sewers, running water, heat, street paving, street lights, recreational facilities, all these kinds of things. So that's sort of a high profile example. Some of the smaller examples, I think, are just innumerable because we're talking about a community that is formed out of people who are enslaved in Halifax and in the U.S. South. A lot of people who escaped slavery to fight on the side of the British and the U.S. Revolutionary War and the War of 1812. And then were given land in Nova Scotia after. But as Lumia says, like not given the land that they were promised, given really infertile land, really peripheral land. And so, you know, just the act of survival and building community in the face of that is really admirable, impressive, and inspiring. And I think that those kinds of smaller acts of survival and resilience in the face of all of this are happening all the time in, in ways that I think are really moving. How are things that Black communities are facing today in the greater Halifax area a product of some of those histories of past oppressions and past struggles? One example is in 2006, the city passed its first region-wide plan to cover all the greater Halifax area. This was a three-year process involving lots of public consultations, lots of reports, lots of meetings. And the aim of it was to produce a kind of more efficient form of urban development and a more sustainable form of urban development. And so to kind of rein in forms of development, particularly in the suburbs, where property developers are creating new subdivisions where houses are on big lots, quite distant from the city, very costly to provide services to, and ultimately not very sustainable ecologically. But when you look closely at that plan, you see that while it's attempting to achieve these goals of efficiency and sustainability, it's got a racist, anti-Black underside. The result of the plan included tons of new investment in infrastructure, water, sewage, public transit, and all of that new public money was directed to areas outside the outlying Black communities. And so Black communities didn't benefit from that at all. We can also see that Black communities made all kinds of demands during the planning process. They expressed a whole bunch of ideas which are totally reasonable and should have just been implemented, but none of them were implemented. Finally, you can see that in order to produce a more efficient, sustainable form of urban development, they needed to basically outlock certain kinds of development. Well, what we find is that those development regulations actually didn't impact property developers at all. Who they did impact were just everyday African Nova Scotian homeowners who often throughout history have informally subdivided their land to build homes for family members, 
And it's one of the ways that communities have survived and thrived over time. And so that's become much, much more difficult for Black communities to do. And so I think in that example of the regional plan, you see an expression of both this long history of racist planning, as well as forms of Black struggle. In this case, those forms of Black struggle were not successful in the short term, but I think those struggles are ongoing. I'll just kind of like add a little bit about what it does emotionally to people in terms of like how people feel moving about in this city. I can't speak for all African Nova Scotian people, but there definitely is some major consequences to these plans and, and not designing and thinking about African Nova Scotian and just diverse people in general. It really has some really major implications. For example, folks in Preston, there's not always things that they want to kind of do in the city to feel like they're welcome in the city. And so this thing of like feeling like we're not necessarily a part of the Halifax experience is one of the consequences the work that we're doing with the One North End, we're talking to young people who live in that neighborhood. And a lot of them don't know what their future is in their own city. Like they don't know what the future is in their own community. And so that really has a lot of impact on people and displacement and this recurring theme of being displaced. It, it really has an emotional, personal impact on people. Like we're making people feel like they don't belong in the city. And that's not good. And what are some of the concrete approaches to community building, to grassroots community work, to struggle that are happening today in Black communities in Halifax that are connected to the many ways that such work has happened in earlier generations? I keep talking about the work of the One North End, but that program and that work is really fresh and new, and that's why I think it's actually really exciting. The One North End is now in a position to be able to do the consultations on a larger scale than they were previously, and working with a company called Common Good Solutions to really bring all the partners and people together to ask questions about spaces and how we might want to work with community. One of the other things that's new and exciting, which I'm a part of, the youthful cities, and so Evergreen and Future City Builders connected and are launching a, a new program of 30 young future city builders. And so I'm a part of that program this year. I'm really excited too about that opportunity because it's taken an approach of looking at the question of affordable housing options. And so Evergreen and Future City Builders and like these types of initiatives aimed at getting young people involved in these conversations about community development and community design is actually really giving us the opportunity to really think about our cities. And so, of course, like I'm going to bring this historical piece to this conversation and to any work that I'm doing around designing the city and giving a sense of what the future might look like. I often start by talking about the One Earth End project as well. I feel very inspired by this project. So the North End is an historically working class neighborhood. There are two or three streets that were predominantly African Nova Scotian for a long, long, long time. It was kind of the urban heart of the African Nova Scotian community in Halifax, but it's rapidly gentrifying. So some kind of response is needed. And I really feel like there's something beautiful about these attempts by the One North End Project to forge conversations and to figure out what the North End is and could be. I think that there's a beautiful vision of getting people together around a vision of justice where people who are experiencing injustice in this process get ahead. Beyond that, I think that there are a variety of things that are related in various ways to planning. I mean, the Burnside jail strike in August and September was really, really inspiring. Burnside is a jail in the greater Halifax area. They went on strike in concert with all these prisoners going on strike in the United States and brought attention to the deplorable conditions that people are experiencing in the prison. And that's not unrelated to planning in the sense of these forms of displacement that are happening. Well, where are they displacing people to? 
when the city eats up black land, pushes people off of it, it puts people in situations where they're more likely to be observed, surveyed, and arrested by the police, and they can end up in prison. And so sometimes confinement and displacement go hand in hand. And then finally, I would mention new efforts to create a discussion about reparations that are led by a really important African Nova Scotian elder named Lynn Jones. And this is obviously a discussion focused on thinking about reparations for slavery and all the people in Halifax and Nova Scotia who are descendants of enslaved people and so are owed something because, you know, as Namia said, they built this place, they built the wealth of this place and aren't benefiting from it in the present. And it can be a discussion about planning too to talk about reparations for the theft of land. There's been so much stolen land over the course of the last 250 years. There's been so much denial of infrastructure that has been given sweet generous to white communities. And I think it's a very righteous move to say that people are owed something for that. And if that works, then there might be money for all kinds of things, including more funding for the kinds of things that Lamia is involved with, creating you know new forms of economy, new ways of living that probably ultimately need some kind of financial resources to happen. So if things move forward in a good way, and if the voices of Black residents of Halifax begin to play the role that they should play in terms of shaping the future of the city, what are some of the ways that Halifax 10 years from now might look different than the Halifax of today? There's been this long-standing call in African Nova Scotian communities for self-determination. For a lot of people who say self-determination, they mean the ability of people to determine their own destinies. And so I think about all of the resources that the city has and that urban planning in general has and how all of those resources have been systematically denied to Black communities for hundreds of years. And so I think if one were to heed calls for self-determination, it would mean shifting those resources towards Black communities so that they can plan things themselves, possibly with advisors if necessary. You know, planners could play a helpful role in the service of people planning their own communities. And so rather than this situation where resources are drawn out of Black communities and spent elsewhere, and where Black communities are consistently asked to participate in planning discussions but are never listened to, I think that to a greater and greater extent, we might be able to see people being able to wield the resources that exist to make the communities better. I guess for me, my vision is grand. I think that if we are able to have these difficult discussions across community and people were asking themselves what they can do about it, I think that we would be so connected and so, you know, able to support each other and everything. And then we would actually really be able to kind of heal. And so I think that that's one of the things that I'm often talking about, healing, grappling with the histories, and for people to feel like these are their issues also and have a group of people and citizens of Halifax that are informed and educated. And then like, we don't continue to make these mistakes because I think that we can be in a place where we can have a future generation of children that can be together and have access to all the same opportunities and more. You have been listening to my interview with Lamia Reddick and Ted Rutland about anti-Black city building in Halifax and Black community survival and resistance. To learn more about Reddick's work, go to lamiareddick.com. And to learn more about Rutland's, search for Ted Rutland on Twitter. To find out more about Talking Radical Radio, the guests, the theme music, and the ways that you can listen, go to talkingradical.ca and click on the link for the radio show. On the site, you can sign up for email updates or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, iTunes, SoundCloud, and other platforms. 
I'm Scott Nye, a writer and media producer based in Hamilton, Ontario, and the author of two books of Canadian history told through the stories of activists, published by Fernwood Publishing. Thank you very much for listening, and I hope you tune in again next week. Thank you.